When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we'll have Professor Jan Doolittle-Wilson. Jan is a professor of gender studies at the University of Tulsa. I think that when I originally conceived of doing this book-centric podcast, this is the sort of conversation, the conversation between Jan and I. This is the kind of conversation that I envisioned might be interesting to people that love a game of thrones but also who are somewhat critically oriented like not just sort of fanboy gushing about how awesome martin is which clearly we do a lot of that on this podcast but this is the kind of conversation that would happen in a university classroom so you get to be like a fly on the wall as academics talk about one of your favorite books, which I guess I'm just super nerdy. I think that that's a really fun thing to do, and it was sort of a risk to bring this out to a wider audience to see who actually would be interested in this. Anyway, I was just so enthralled with this conversation, and I hope you are too. And then, of course, Steve and I bring the conversation back to a very basic level and talk a little bit more uh, scatologically. Without further ado, here is Bosmang Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! Aaron, do you think that Rudy Giuliani knows what trial by combat is? I... I mean, maybe he did, and he thought that he, if if someone took him up on it, he could would draw a champion from the crowd. Because as we well know, <laughs> there were some heavy hitters. There were some people that looked like they, that you know, mountain esque uh, with 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 plate carriers and uh, all kinds of shit strapped to him. So maybe he thought he could get pull a Tyrion and declare trial yeah. by combat, and then pick the biggest dude in his audience and square off. But yeah, yeah. I honestly, when I first heard that, I thought, oh no, like, what is, what's happening here? And then I thought, you know how, like, Jules Winfield, like, recites that verse from Ezekiel before he puts a cap in your ass? Oh, right, the the, the fake, the fake Ezekiel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it ends, the, the way that the verse ends is, is accurate, but... It's mostly oh, really? Just like, I thought it yeah, was yeah. like not even the right like subscri- like not even the right scripture site. It's totally fake, but it ends correctly. So anyway, um which is what matters because you want to build up to that climax. Yeah, you want to build up to the yeah, the the your ass moment. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe that he just thought it was like 
some cool stuff to say. Some cold-blooded smack. Yeah. Without really kind of thinking, like, what does that actually mean in this context? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the problem with the people that, uh, I mean, this is very Game of Thrones. Everything that's been happening in the country, right? It's like you've got, <laughs> you've got the well-meaning idiots, the bloody-minded idiots, and then mm-hmm. the idiots that are just trying to climb the rung of power. And none of, everyone thinks they're Littlefinger and none of them are. Uh, even Littlefinger, in the end, didn't turn out to be Littlefinger, right? At least as, as far as the show goes. Yeah, so. well, yeah. Here's what I think. I think Giuliani is definitely guilty of riling people up. There's, there's no doubt about that. And he's using a violent metaphor, right? There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if he has any clue what the reference is. Like. You think he was watching Game of Thrones, or do you think he just well, grabbed I mean, that out of the ether? But but like George didn't invent trial by combat, so it's yeah, entirely possible that like you know he this is like some kind of thing he remembered reading at some point, and also his grandkids were talking about this mountain guy, and mm. yeah. But I don't know. A hundred million you people know all around the world watch Game of Thrones. There's probably a better chance of Giuliani watching Game of Thrones than reading medieval history. It's true. That's true. That's what I'm saying. Like, 100 million yeah. people around the world watch Game of Thrones. Why <laughs> Why couldn't Rudy be one of those 100 million? Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, next question from Walker of Dragons Game of Thrones fan human. And she asks, who would you most enjoy pointing to and saying Dracarys? In the book? <laughs> it's not specified. I'm going to stick in the book. Um <laughs> Gosh, the person who is the ma- man who is the because we- there are some all time great weasels um, in Game of Thrones history, uh, like not just like the outright like Joffreys mm-hmm. of the world, but I'm thinking of like uh, Jano Slint. Isn't that the guy yeah. who was the 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 commander of the Watch and he was so corrupt yeah. and he thought he was cool and he thought he could like. Uh, you know, lip off to Tyrion, and then he found out he couldn't. Uh, then he thought he could lip off, lip off the the John at the wall. Kept yep, on making this didn't same work. mistake. Did not um, I found like a lot of times, like my ire would be most focused against type those types, like not yeah. the people that are just like dyed in the wool evil because they're crazy, and you know, like in Joffrey's case, like Ramsey. Ram, yeah, like people that didn't really have a chance. You know, you're the bastard son of Roose Bolton. Things are probably going to go badly for you, um, but yeah, guys like the like the the, the Janos Slint that like corruptly worked inside the system willingly, knowfully, knowingly with their eyes wide mm-hmm. open. I'm trying to think what is the worst example of that. Um, man, I I who who is the the guy that got married to Danny in the books? Um, feel like we owe it. To our fans to get the name right here. All right, all right, here we go. <laughs> all right, his name is Hisdar Zolarek. Uh, yeah, fuck that guy in particular. <laughs> yeah, so this is the guy who's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not I'm I'm one of the good slavers, and and I yeah, I want to be a, I I want to I want to change society for the better, and and but also you know. People want some blood sports. We need to get these pits open and get those. They want to fight. Look at them. They love it. Yeah, fuck that guy. Dracarys. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Jan, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into the thick of it. How does that sound? Okay, that sounds great. I'm going to do a synopsis of the chapter. So we're discussing Danny's second point of view chapter. So Drogo's people have gathered at Pentos for his wedding. And Danny and Illyrio and Jorah and Viserys are sharing a decadent meal. The men at the table reiterate the terms of the agreement. Cal Drogo will receive Danny. And Viserys will receive an army. The next day, the ceremony is an all-day affair. Danny witnesses her brother's wounded insecurity, Drogo's massive horde, and a dozen murders. After receiving several gifts, including three dragon eggs, Danny and Drogo ride off and consummate their union. And there's so much that I've left unsaid. <laughs> that was a very succinct but accurate uh, <laughs> summary of the chapter. Very, very, very well done. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So, there's a couple things here that I I saw in this reading that I had missed before. I, as with many men my age, I've watched The Godfather a dozen times. Um, <laughs> I have too. And, and there's this famously the opening scene of the godfather is this wedding but it's a wedding that introduces a culture to which uh k is not familiar and i suppose the reader is invited to see this new culture through her eyes and it's a little different it's a little wacky there are some really you know tender moments and funny moments and yet k learns that there are monsters around right there right. there are murderers and uh, even this, the, you know, this very beloved father figure is is a murderer. And you have that taking place within this very typical, very, I mean, not typical in the sense that you have a very upper class family putting this on, but it's a wedding. Right. What can be more innocuous than a wedding? A family celebration of little children running around. Yeah. You have people singing. Yeah, right? it's like you got and this. Yet you're hearing this story of monstrosity from yeah. this man that you are intimate with. Yeah. So you have this mixture of innocence and horror, right? Uh, because the, you know there, there's something innocent about a wedding. Um, there's something pure about a wedding. At least that's the the visage of it. And yet, you know that people are that are attending this wedding are very scary people. Yes. And I kind of get the same sense in, in a way with the introduction to Dothraki culture. So instead of introducing Italian-American culture like we have in The Godfather through Kay's eyes, we're seeing Dothraki culture through Danny's eyes. Um, I think it's a really good analogy. And it kind of reminded me of that in a sense because... Here we have several characters who are very gray. You know, they're not black or white characters. And then you've got some really horrible characters like Viserys, uh, that, who is just everything about oh, him. Everything about him. <laughs> he's just monstrous. 
He is, and he's a different kind of monster. And I, I, I appreciate what you're saying about seeing this through Danny's point of view. I love the point of view chapters, the ploy that Martin uses in his narrative, yeah. because she is now seeing Viserys through a different lens, right? When he is kind of put up against a Thraki culture, right. he becomes a different type of monster. He becomes a different person, really. And you see that evolution you know, through subsequent chapters. But I think it's really at this wedding scene where Viserys looks so out of place. Yeah. He is so disgruntled that he's not on the upper platform, you know, with, with the call and his blood riders, right. that he is in a lower position. He is not the one being bestowed with gifts. It's now his sister. Yeah. So she's starting to, this is a really important chapter by which she is starting to see Viserys through a new lens, not to mention the reader that is invited to see the Dothraki through her point of view. Mm -hmm. Viserys is the typical bully whose authority is being challenged. And this person could become even more dangerous to the people that he views as his inferior because, because of his wounded insecurity. Right. Um, And she is once again, you know, the object of his frustration and anger and his own insecurities. Right. Right. And so she's almost, Danny's almost escaping this, this abusive relationship. And it may be sort of a, out of the frying pan into the fire situation, but I'm sort of happy that Viserys isn't going to have her under his thumb anymore. Even if what he, (laughs) Even if we're, this is a very horrific event. I mean, I don't, there were not, I'm Italian, uh, but we did not have a dozen murders at my wedding. <laughs> so it, was, that it wasn't quite a wedding, apparently, yeah, according it was a very to the dull affair. <laughs> it was a very dull affair. <laughs> you have to have at least three deaths, Anthony. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the way that they're described is, is really horrific, too. Just, just the, almost the casual normalcy of the violence involved. You know, there's these dancers and then this the Thraki warrior decides he's going to mount one of them. That's the language that's right. being used. And then, so there's this murder that happens. The first guy's disemboweled or forget which guy's disemboweled, but the winner just grabs any, any woman that's nearby. Right. It's not even the woman that they were fighting over. Um, right, took hold of the nearest woman, yes. it reads. Yes. And, and this is kind of written off with Illyrio's statement that the Dothraki don't view shame or sin as we do. So then we complicate this further because several times the Dothraki are likened to animals. Yes. As a culture. Yes. Um, and so it's sort of like, oh, well, this can be forgiven because, uh, you know, because this is a different culture and these aren't these aren't really fully human in the eyes of the, you know, the Westerosi men at the table or whatever. Boy, we're just in the thick of it. We're just there is a morality problem at every turn of phrase in this chapter. You know, like you were saying, Danny's point of view, the way in which she describes them, if you look at just some of the adjectives and the descriptions that Martin uses to portray the Dothraki, even before you get to the violence and the rape and and all of that, their bronze skin, right? Their ferocious Mm -hmm. um, facial expressions. Of course, they have the long braids. The way in which they eat, they gorge themselves 
right? They gorge themselves on horse flesh. They don't just eat, they gorge themselves. They drank themselves blind. Their voice is harsh and alien. And almost every time you see a description of the Thraki, especially through Danny's eyes, you get these kinds of descriptives. That's right. That's right. The almond eyes and bronze skin, this is sort of how Western Europe viewed Asian culture, specifically like Attila the Hun. Yes. In fact, I think Martin explicitly stated that he modeled them after the Huns and the Mongols, right? right. And I think, you know, in my mind, I always, you know, see the actors who portrayed these characters in in the HBO adaptation. Um, but it's clear that by this language, that by this repeated language of bronze skin and almond eyes, that Martin really is envisioning some kind of nomadic Asian culture. Yes. You know, generally speaking, uh, this this is how white men <laughs> refer to Asians <laughs> very, you know, stereotypically. I mean, that's sort of a, a further indication that we're, we're really seeing Attila the Hun or a, some sort of stand in for Attila the Hun here. And in that ancient literature, Attila was just this ferocious, I mean, he just struck fear into every single person in Western Europe. Right. And, and there was this, this, just this deep fear of, uh, and rumors about him that he was just this monster, marauding monster. And one of the points that I make in, uh, in one of the chapters of this book that I wrote with Aaron was that, that Martin is just as interested in the rumors of medieval society as he is in the sort of the historical facts of medieval society. Mm. So we're almost seeing not just Attila the Hun, but we're seeing Attila the Hun as he was feared through Western eyes. Mm, that's a good point. And I think that that's what this chapter is trying to do. It's trying to say, okay, what if it was what if it wasn't Attila the Hun as a real historical person, but what if all of the rumors about Attila were true? What sort of monstrous, you know, easterner could we invent? And that's kind of how Danny experiences him. And I think you're right. I think it's also how people throughout Essos experience the Dothraki, right? This idea that their legend precedes them and that fear of what they might do if they, you know, invade your village and try to conquer. And you see that as well, I think, through subsequent chapters. The Dothraki screamers, the Dothraki horde, right? Even the people, of course, of Westeros fear the Dothraki, even though they don't think that they can invade, Mm-hmm. And we have this language of horse lords, which the Dothraki don't use of themselves. Right. Um, but that's how they're referred to. And that kind of is a little, co- I mean, maybe an echo, I think, of how, like in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, how the the kingdoms of Rohan were viewed as sort of a mm. a more earthy culture. They're more into their horses. They don't have sort of this longer legacy of you know civil discourse and so i think that martin is sort of creating this this hybrid of mythology and history and we know he's deeply influenced by tolkien oh, yeah. i was i was thinking about lord of the rings actually when i was thinking about danny and power and and having now seen you know the show mm-hmm. uh seen the conclusion of the show and presumably 
Martin gave notes to the showrunners. We we yeah. we can assume what will happen to Danny in the book version. I was thinking a lot about the correlation to a lot of what we see in terms of themes of power yeah. and the corruption of power in Lord of the Rings. There's a whole topic for another podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. Guest choice. Would you like to talk about a plot point, a character, a theme, or would you like to climb the ladder of chaos? Oh, my goodness. Oh, we can just keep talking about Danny. Yeah. This chapter was really troubling for a number of reasons. Yes. <laughs> and partly because... Partly because Martin is really great at describing horrific events, right? Indeed. Um, yeah, he can be a very disturbing horror author at times. He can. That's a good way to put it. But there are a few, there's one element that I feel like, okay, this is disturbing me sort of in spite of Martin's intentions. And that is how I am to read the consummation scene at the end of the chapter. Yes. And I thought, I need to talk to a professor of gender studies to help me get my <laughs> head around what I'm reading here. In fact, when you told me which chapter you wanted to discuss, I immediately knew which chapter to which you were referring. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation because it's something that I have given a lot of thought to. It's something I talk to my students yes. uh, about um, at, at great length. So I'm anxious to hear your thoughts about it and just dis to discuss yeah. it with you. Well, I'll go ahead and just lay it on the table here. I think Martin intends me to read this as if this is a very consensual consummation at the end of the chapter. I agree. I think that's his intent. And yeah, I, it's impossible to read it that way. I absolutely agree. I think his intention is for this to be consensual. I think he is trying to soften the very disturbing fact that Danny is 13. Yeah. When she weds Khal Drogo, he is, if I'm remembering correctly, a man of 30 or near 30. And not only that, she has been sold to him. And the language of selling is used repeatedly. Repeatedly. Least, <laughs> yes, repeatedly. She knows that there's been a price, and she knows that she's part of the price. And so the reader's reminded that this is a child being sold. A child being sold. And she is fully aware that she is being sold. And even though she doesn't yet have the language in this chapter to describe herself as a victim slash survivor of repeated abuse from her brother... Yeah. Um, she knows exactly what her brother's intentions are as well. That he oh, does not her, have her brother's very blunt about the <laughs> very the overt affair. about yeah. his intentions and, and his purpose in selling her to this stranger. He's very um he doesn't mince his words at all, right? right. And so she knows very well what what the purpose is here. She knows that she is sold. She knows she has no choice in the matter. And if you look through, you know, I, I read over the chapter, it, it's something I've read many times, but in preparation for the pod, I read over it a couple more times. Mm -hmm. And one thing that just strikes you again and again, I think, as you read through this is just her fear. I mean, oh, yeah. all the way leading up to the actual consummation, just this visceral fear that she 
describes through this inner monologue. Yeah. Um, everything about this is foreign to her. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. It's, it's very terrifying um, from what is actually happening during the wedding ceremony to just her trepidation about what is to come. So you're, you're put fully within her, it's her point of view chapter, right? So we're fully put within her point of view. We feel that fear. We feel that terror that is building up to them this moment. And then you get this weird sort of switch on Martin's part where she, you know, keeps describing this stranger she's next to as very savage, as uh, rough hewn, you know, all of these words that he uses. And then suddenly he turns into, in Martin's description, a very compassionate, (laughs) a very tender and gentle lover. And something about that switch, I think it's that switch combined with what follows that switch that is so very disturbing to me. Let me just read this one little line. This is her writing the silver for the first time. Okay. And for the first time in hours, she forgot to be afraid. Mm. Or perhaps it was for the first time ever. So we get the sense that she's lived her life in fear. Right. Of her brother, of just the vulnerabilities of being in exile. And she's especially afraid of Khal Drogo. Yes. So she's terrified. And then... He shows her just the slightest bit of affection, and she's relieved by the affection. And so the question is, this is a child who was fearing the worst, and because it was a tender act, I mean, I think that the tenderness belies something much more disturbing in that I think she's relieved that it's not violent. Right. And because she's relieved, she sort of lets herself continue to be submissive. And that is, to me is not con- consent. That is uh no. that that is passivity or whatever. There there's a lot to talk about in this chapter, but that's the part that keeps gnawing at me. And you know, I've heard so many people and and by people I mean um just in conversations I've had, things that I've read, both scholarly and popular accounts, and even conversations I've had with my students when I teach this section of the, of the books. Mm-hmm. I've heard so many people say, well, in the show, it's not consensual, but in the books it is. And they point to this language that Martin uses, the fact that he is gentle with her, as you just mentioned, um, that he tries to communicate with her, that he is focused on, on her pleasure, at least to a certain extent. Yeah. And he, there is some sort of attempt to ask for consent. Exactly. I'm looking at, at the language uh, where he, the only word he knows in, in her tongue, right? No, he said. Mm-hmm. And she knew it was a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she took his hand. Yes, she whispered, right? right? And so for many people, that signals consent. And from my point of view, the books are almost worse than the show. <laughs> because at least the show doesn't pull any punches, right? The show doesn't try to make it something it's not. It shows it very blatantly that this is not an act of consent. It cannot be consensual. Whereas in the books, the fact that it's trying, I think, to show that it's a consensual act when it can't ever be consensual is much more problematic in my point of view. Do you agree with that? Mm, I think I'm going to push back a tiny bit. And just to say this, the show is problematic in a different way. I mean, I'm trying not to say the word problematic as much. 
The show, <laughs> I use that word a lot as well. The show is disturbing in a different way because Danny's much older in the show. Right. Um, she's still being sold, so there's still that problem, right? How much older is she really, though, in the show? I think yeah, she's I supposed know. to be only about 16, 17. Yeah, I know that they age up a lot of these children in the show. That's a good question. I don't know how old she's supposed to be. But I mean, it's, let's just say this. I think that we're seeing... She's not 13. That's <laughs> she's right. not 13, she's not. at least. That's right. And I think that we're seeing two different kinds of rape. And one is more violent than the other. And yet, because she's aged up in the show, I think the showrunners had an opportunity to do something different with their relationship. And, uh, I mean, they, they, they made the choice. They made the choice to make her older. Uh, right. And yet, they didn't make the choice to help us understand. I that I think at the end of the day, I'm really having trouble understanding Danny's motives at the end of the scene. It's because of my own limitations. I can't imagine being a 13-year-old girl in this situation. So I think that the book and the show with this particular part of it, I think that they're disturbing. They're just disturbing in different ways. I agree. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that, you know, one is better than the other. I do think, however, that the show at least doesn't try to pretend it's anything but what it is. Right. That's right. And not only the way in which it is portrayed. I think you're right. It is more violent, a different kind of violence being portrayed in the show. There is no, absolutely no hint of pleasure at all. Even if there were, that would still be rape, right? Right. But she clearly is in pain. Uh, She is terrified during the act. And then subsequent, right? Subsequent encounters between the two shows her crying in pain. She is obviously still very scared. There is no attention to her needs or her pleasure at all until later, right? We, and that's problematic as well. I'm trying not to say that word as well. (laughs) Um, But I guess that's what I'm suggesting is at least the show doesn't pretend it's not rape. Yeah. I'm hearing you on this. Um, and even a little bit later, when, you know, way into season seven, uh-huh. season, I think season seven, you know, she overtly tells Jon Snow, I have been raped. You know, so she right. actually claims that word yeah. in a way that you just don't get in the books. That's right. Both, I, I agree with you, both are disturbing um, in their own ways. But I, I guess that's what I'm getting at when I say at least the show is maybe more honest about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I'm not sure if that's the way to put it, but that's kind of what I'm suggesting. No. And I think, well, let me ask you this. Let's say we want to make a movie. You and I are going to make a movie. All right. Okay. And one of the themes that we are going to talk about in the movie is male, female sexuality and the problems of rape culture. Okay. Let's say we want to make this movie and we both care about doing it virtuously is it ever justified to depict an act of rape on the screen like that? Mm. See, I feel like the context really matters. The question is, what's the larger story that's being told? And yet there's something about simply depicting it that that is going to contribute to rape culture uh, despite the intentions of the author. No, I know exactly what you're saying. And that's struggle that I've had in terms of where do you... Where do you make that distinction? Yeah. And, you know, you know this. 
how many times have you been watching a film, a, a movie, a TV show, in which rape is simply used as a plot point? Right. Right. It's yeah. used as a plot point, not in service even of the character who is a rape survivor or victim, but it's used as a plot point to advance the narrative of usually the white male protagonist. <laughs> We've yeah. seen this again and again and again. And Game of Thrones employs that <laughs> exhaustively. So when is when is it ever justified? When is it ever, um, when is it necessary, I guess, to advance yeah. a, a certain part of the plot that doesn't just serve another character, but actually tells you something about the character development of the person who experiences that horrific act? Yeah. It is contextual. And I think it is something that you have to look at on an individual basis as opposed to making you know, a larger statement. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard, though. It's a hard distinction. And I have become so frustrated with seeing rape so explicitly portrayed yeah. in, in so many of the films and TV shows that I've, I've witnessed over the years that it almost got to the point where I just started to walk out. <laughs> if I saw it depicted on screen, I just yeah. didn't want to see it anymore. And I would just walk out. I refused to participate in that as a viewer. I think that there's this really lazy bit of storytelling where by... Lazy is a good word. Yeah, whereby you've, you want to show that someone's a bad guy. And so mm -hmm. he's like going to uh, attempt to rape a woman. And then he gets thwarted and the good guy can step in and stop it. And so it's the good guy. Yeah. Yes. And so it's usually yes. a plot point to motivate mm -hmm. again, the white male hero mm -hmm. to avenge the woman who has been either raped mm -hmm. or killed or slaughtered yeah. in some way. Yes. It's really shorthand for that guy's wearing the black hat. That guy's wearing the, yes. the white hat. We know who the good guy is because of course, no, you know, no good guy would allow a bad guy to do this. Yes. Um, and all of that is all about the men. <laughs> it's all about the men. And, you know, I was actually thinking about this and how many times this has happened in the history of Game of Thrones. You know, we can debate Danny's role in this as a character. Just we can make a list, yeah. right, of how many times rape, sexual violence against the female characters is used to tell us something about the male characters yeah. or to help their journey. Um, Jamie and Cersei, right? right. Uh, Brienne's right. storyline, yeah. which in the books, we never really get Brienne's point of view while that's happening. Her sexual trauma, it's all told through Jamie's point of view. Um, Oberyn Martell, yeah. his entire life is spent avenging what happened to his sister. Even Lawless, who is almost completely written out of the shows, right? Poor Lawless, Stokeworth, yeah. who is viciously gang raped, um, it's treated as kind of almost a, a punchline. It, it's kind of a running joke throughout the book what happens to Lawless. Not to mention Sansa, right, in the show version. Yeah, that's exactly what happens uh, to Sansa. She is almost gang raped, yes. and the hound, and this is actually a sort of a, a turning point. This tells us something about the yeah. hound. <laughs> He looks like a bad guy, but maybe he's a good guy because he saved her. You know, that, yes. that's sort of the shorthand that's being used. Yes, that he has committed all of these horrible, evil acts, but really at heart, because he saved Sansa, yeah. uh, he's a good guy and we need to root for him. Yeah. And then, of course, in the show version, the rape of Sansa by Ramsay Bolton is told from Theon's point of view. Right. Um, so 
you know, by failing to center women's experiences in these depictions of, of rape and sexual assault, it not only trivializes sexual violence, it also inadequately portrays how women complexly experience its effects, not to mention how it's told simply to tell us something about the male characters. It's, yes, it, it's deeply disturbing. And of course, Game of Thrones is not the only narrative to do this. We see this all the time. Thank you for helping me think through <laughs> think through that. <laughs> sure. I, I really do appreciate it. There's a couple things here that I, I saw in this reading that I had missed before. One thing that we probably want to talk about is more about is this, the language of selling that's mm. used repeatedly. Yeah. Um, Danny knows what's being sold. And in addition to that, in addition to the initial sort of trade her for an army, she also knows that Illyrio's receiving like tons of horses and slaves in this trade. Right. So there is something... I mean, this, it just, the whole, the, the whole thing is just dirty and filthy and immoral, but it's sort of the matter of factness of this, uh, of this horse trading that's happening that is arresting to me. Right. And she is just a complete object in this exchange. Right. She doesn't have, nor is she expected to have any sort of agency and the first time that she dares to even hint to her brother that she doesn't want to do this, mm -hmm. of course, he turns on her with anger, don't wake the dragon, right? right? Which is his running refrain. So she knows, you know, as we said before, she knows exactly what her place is in this. She knows she has no choice. And she is simply talked about rather than talked to, even during her own wedding ceremony. Right. Yeah. She is a product of exchange, just like the horses. I think you're, you're quite right to point that out. She's property. She's property. And this is what we sometimes call mirror reading in the sense that okay. we're learning about Dothraki culture through her eyes, right? Right. So um, we're, inter we're sort of being introduced to an alien culture through her eyes, and yet... We don't know a whole lot about her first. So the way, the only way to learn about her is by her impressions of Dothraki culture or her impressions of her brother. Right. And th I think this kind of speaks to maybe her lack of agency. Yes. And how that shifts, especially throughout the first book. I was looking back through all of Danny's point of view chapters specifically through Game of Thrones. I kind of glanced at, at the subsequent books as well, but especially in a Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And it is very interesting, very interesting to see the shift in language. And so I think you're, you're exactly right. In the first few Danny point of view chapters, she is seeing her world through observation. Mm -hmm. So she is observing the Threki culture, she is having all kinds of thoughts about her brother, about Jorah, her handmaidens. And then you start to see this shift. And it happens, it happens as early as the chapter in which she tries to present her brother with clothes and invites him to lunch. Right, right, right. And he storms into the tent. And it's one of the first times that she fights back right. and asserts herself in such a way and, and starts to acknowledge that, okay, my brother isn't the person I thought he was. I realize I'm not really afraid of him anymore. Yeah. 
Um, he is not really the blood of the dragon. Maybe that's someone else. And then about halfway through Game of Thrones, she shifts that focus to her son. Mm. And so she still can't claim power and agency entirely for herself. It has to be filtered through her unborn son. And so everything she tries to do in terms of asserting herself is in the name of her son. Mm. And so when she begs, you know, I guess beg is too strong of a word, when she pleads with Drogo to invade Westeros, to take her home, as she puts it, she starts to realize that, um, you know, where she is can't really ever be her home. She does so in the name of her son. My son has a birthright. He has a right to sit the Iron Throne. Everything goes through him. The speech that Drogo gives, again, problematic, there's our word. The speech he gives at the end of that chapter where it starts out, okay, invading, you know, taking back what is ours, and then, you know, plundering, killing, and raping the women. You know, it gets gets very disturbing as he goes Mm -hmm. on. But it's done in the name of their son, Rogo, right? So I will put my son on the throne. And then, of course... When even a little bit before uh, she has uh, her son who is is stillborn, presumably, we're not really sure, uh, but the suggestion is that her son is stillborn. Even before then, you see a shift in her language where she is still concerned with her son and putting her son on the throne, but it's more about her. Yeah. So I am the blood of the dragon. This is maybe my birthright. And then that fully comes into being in, of course, the very last chapter, which is a Danny point of view chapter where she has had the baby. The baby's died. Yeah. Uh, Drogo is dead. Um, she's getting ready to walk into the funeral pyre. And she asks for a pledge of loyalty from the blood riders. Yeah, for herself. And for herself now. Yeah. And everyone but Jorah turns her down. And she makes Jorah, I mean, think about this hubris, right? She makes Jorah a member of her new Queen's Guard. <laughs> She's getting ready to walk into a funeral pyre. They are decimated. Drogo is dead. They've lost most of their riders. And yet she's forming a Queen's Guard. Yeah, right. And it's that moment when she steps out of the fire uh-huh. and they all bow to her that that's really the beginning of Danny. That is what is supposed to be her hero monomyth, right? Yeah. That is her moment where now she is subject. She is no longer seeing the world through the eyes of others or living for others. It is now her story. Yeah. And there's such, I mean, and, and the, the Phoenix imagery there is just sort of like, it's right there in your face. Yes. Um, we are sort of seeing this slow plod to the death of her childhood, the death of passivity, the death of, you know, her servitude. That, that is her identity, right? Yes. Uh, the, the death of sort of her being a possession or, you know, being passed around by this powerful man to that powerful man. That, that is who she is. And yes. she's pretty self-aware about it. But it's that sort of that final walk to the funeral pyre where that part of her is going to die and this other part of her is going to sort of rise more powerful and different, transformed. Yes. And you're right. It's a slow build. I mean, what gets her to that point is this kind of slow evolution and you really have to pay attention to the language to see it happening. Mm. And so 
you know, if you if you pay attention to that language and see that evolution over the course of the book, mm-hmm. her walking into the pyre and coming out the other side the way in which she does mm-hmm. makes sense. It's not an abrupt transition. It's been building right. and it's building on that history of trauma. It's building on that history of being sold and being an object. All of that leads to and and helps to carve out this person who emerges, her strength in overcoming that, her strength in getting through that, yeah. her growing faith in herself, which uh, does in part lead to her downfall later. Right. Um, this is a little, there's this little seed planted in the chapter. Um, let's see here. This is on the second page. Uh, Viserys bristled, guard your tongue, Mormont, or I'll have it out. I'm no lesser man. <laughs> I am the rightful lord of the seven kingdoms. (laughs) Oh, he reminds me of Joffrey in some ways. Do you remember when Joffrey's getting ready to go into battle and he claims he's going to bring back Stannis's head? You know, it's just that utter, um, just complete lack of reality. You know, this, uh, what world are you living in where you think that you have this kind of power and this kind of ability? I always think of Disney's Robin Hood, the one where, you know, Robin Hood's played by a fox. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we the, just watched that the other day, my son and I. Yeah. So the king has, you know, the king is like sucking his <laughs> thumb and whatnot. And he's like, he has to shout from time to time that he's king. Yes. Right. So it's sort of like yes. he has to remind people because, you know, you're sucking your thumb. And do you remember Tywin's great comeback oh. when Joffrey yells out he is king? <laughs> what does he say? A real king doesn't have to say he's king or something? Exactly. Yeah. And of course, the delivery on the part of um, Charles Dance, who I think is tremendous. He's just glorious, yes. He is just wonderful. I can't imagine anybody else in that role. So Viserys says, the dragon does not beg. And then it says, Sir Jorah lowered his eyes respectfully. Illyrio smiled enigmatically and tore a wing from the duck. (laughs) Honey and grease ran over his fingers and it dripped down to his beard as he nibbled the tender meat. There are no more dragons, Denny thought staring at her brother, although she dared not say it aloud. So there's this little seed planted that she has this interior voice that sees her brother for what he is. Yes. And she's sort of coming to the awareness that he says he's a dragon. It's certainly not true. There are no more dragons, which could be read on the surface as something very literal. There are no more dragons. But in the way that Danny means it, I think it's that you're not a Targaryen king like you think you are. Yeah. And then what is unsaid, and which we'll find out later, is that Danny's the dragon. Yes. And so this sort of this interior voice is introduced here. And it doesn't say much, but it kind of gives you this little hint of dissent. Yes, yes. And in fact, you remind me in the chapter in which she talks to Drogo about going to Westeros. And at first he says, no, that's not possible. We're not going. And then, of course, the assassination attempt happens. And then he's so angered, right, that the king of Westeros has tried to assassinate his wife, that that motivates him to go. But if you look at the language in that chapter, she is still articulating everything through her son. I mean, what else can she do as a woman, right? right? That's the only way in which historically women have had any claim to power. It has to be mediated through their sons, through their husbands, through their brothers. So it's not at all surprising that she's doing this. But if you read her internal monologue, 
I think you were so right to point that out. Even at the wedding, that early on, there are no more dragons, right? Here she writes, or, or she thinks, with Viserys gone, Daenerys was the last, the very last. Right, right. And she notes, if I were not the blood of the dragon, this could be my home, but it's not because I do have the blood of the dragon. I am the last. Yeah. She doesn't say my son is the last. I am the last. But then, of course, her very next breath is, but it's for my son. Because she can't claim power for herself yet. No one will listen to her. It has to be mediated through her son. That's the way women yeah. historically have found power. But I wanted to ask you, Anthony, if I, if I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, being so hard to separate show from books. And I think any perception I have of Danny at this point is so colored mm -hmm. by what I know happens in the show. What do you think Martin, the show, the showrunners, Game of Thrones universe is trying to suggest about women in power? Mm -hmm. Because if you just stop at the books, I think we're on to something. Right. I think that he I think Martin does a, a really incredible job of showing how difficult it was for women mm -hmm. to gain power or to exercise power. Certainly, if they were to be successful, they had to exercise it in a way that looked different from how men were exercising power. And that's still true of women today. Mm -hmm. Right. Women can do the same thing a man does. But yet she's called very derisive names for doing what she does, where a man in her similar position is just aggressive and tough. Right. And we know this. Mm -hmm. But knowing what we now know about what happens to Danny, mm -hmm. do you think that one thing that, that really bothered me is the turn that, that Danny takes in the show, which is the whole, you know, powerful woman goes crazy trope, which yeah. we see again and again. And the fact that either she just couldn't handle the power, she's so traumatized by her past, she's so resentful of uh, John's role in, in the story. Um, heartbroken over, you know, her relationships, her inability to have children. I mean, whatever you want to call her motivations. Mm -hmm. Is that where we're leading, do you think, in the book version, that the idea that a woman who tries to seize the kind of power Danny does will always be punished in the end? And I haven't made up my mind about this. I'm, I'm generally curious to see what you think mm -hmm. about this. Where are we going with this? Well, I think two things. I think that yes, we will see in the books. I I do I do think that we're going to see Danny become something of a tyrannical leader, and I think that there's a lot of hints in this direction throughout. Yeah, I don't know if it's because she goes crazy or whatnot. Um, I think that she's going to she's going to convince herself that you've got to you know break some eggs to make an omelet, and if I really want lasting peace in the Seven Kingdoms. I have to put down my enemies and that be, sort of becomes this driving motivation, which yeah. you could get with a male or female character, I think. Yeah. Um, wh but what does this say about women leadership? I mean, I think that there are many, many different types of women that we meet in this world. Just listing some of my favorite characters, which is Lady Stoneheart and mm. Arya and Sansa. Danny and, uh, you know, Theon's sister. Yeah. She's Yara in the show, Asha in the books. It's possible that someone like Sansa is sort of ascends and becomes this wise and good leader of Winterfell. 
And it's also possible that she's struck down and she's, like you said, punished for trying to ascend higher than her station. These are all very complex characters. And I don't know if Martin is trying to say something about women in leadership or if it's just kind of like his unconscious feelings of masculinity are driving the plot. Does that make any sense? It does. And it could be, it could be as well. Just, you know, again, we can see the influence of Lord of the Rings here. Um, Is he making a statement less about women in power or about power? Yeah. The idea that anyone who fervently strives for power is most ill-suited to use it, right? right? That those who want to rule are the least qualified to do so. And, you know, you really see, again, you certainly see it happening at the end of a Game of Thrones, and then you can certainly see it in the subsequent books, how Danny begins to take on just the singular drive. Mm-hmm. It's my birthright. I have a right to this throne, and I'm going to pursue it, and I don't care really what the cost is. So there is that, certainly that element. She has great empathy at times. She wants to, you know, change things. She wants to be a a decent kind of ruler. She doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of her father. She wants to free the slaves. You know, you see these great motives, but really underneath all of that is just this drive of I deserve it. Mm -hmm. And that's what you hear from Viserys early on, you know? So you do see that element in her and, you know, that, that really disturbing scene, I think both in the book and the show of when she goes to, is it Yunkai and frees the slaves of Yunkai right, and they right, of course right. lift her up and call out Misa, you know, that, that scene was so criticized, I think rightly so in yeah, many yeah. ways, but it takes on this kind of white savior narrative. Right. And I think one thing that the book is trying to suggest at least is we're not supposed to feel really good about that. <laughs> we're supposed to see that as, a little disturbing that she is at that point um, so used to being adored and loved Mm -hmm. and venerated that she begins to need that. Mm -hmm. She begins to kind of thrive on that and that becomes dangerous um, where she stops thinking in terms of that larger picture and more about how does this make me feel, right? How does this make me feel validated? And you do see hints of that throughout the books. You mentioned a scene earlier where she she recognizes now that Viserys is dead, I'm the last, right? Yes, yes. The last dragon, the last true, you know, Targaryen, whatever. And I think that there's a danger there. I mean, it is a, a sort of a self-realization, which you really want because she's been yes. abused <laughs> for so long, right? Yes. And you're almost willing to forgive her anything that she has to do to grab some power because it that's because she's lacked power for so long, right? Yes. At the other on the other side of it, it's very dangerous to believe that you're the only one that can save things in the world, right? And that it's your birthright, it's your, your destiny. Yes. Yeah, you're the only one. You're the only one and the only way that the, the world will be set to right is if you have all the power. Yes. That's just a I mean, that is absolutely a recipe for tyranny, right? So it is, especially when you don't take into consideration what the people who you presume to rule want. Right. And we see that evolution as well, where, again, her motives may be pure at the outset, but does she ever really consult with the people that she's first conquering and then determined to rule? And here she is talking about going to Westeros, mm-hmm. a place she's never really been, 
ever since she was first born. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know the people, the history, the culture, other than the story she's been told about her father and her brother. And a lot of that was filtered through Viserys. Hmm. So she is determined to go and conquer and rule a place with which she has very little familiarity. And I think she starts to realize some of that when she goes to Marine of oh, the Miranese years, right? She starts to realize some of that when she goes to Marine and things are pretty disastrous there. And she has such a pushback mm-hmm. in ways that she hadn't really experienced before, mainly because she hadn't spent as much time, right? She goes, she frees, she conquers, and she leaves. Mm-hmm. And Marine is really the first place where she thought, okay, I need to spend some time here and kind of figure out what it means to rule what it really means to change things, what it means to be a benevolent monarch. And that's where she runs into trouble, realizing she has no experience. <laughs> she has a birthright. Well, and, and, she's and she in, has adoration. That's and right. that's it, really. And she's she's trying to impose this ideal of this imaginary culture onto an indigenous people group that have a much different view of the world. Yes. Right. So she's always she, she's never going to succeed there because no. she's always going to have this ideal of what sort of the this Westerosi fairy book ideal of what a kingdom should look like, and this culture that she feels like she's liberated. They have a much different view of the, how the world works. Yes. Um, and so, and I mean, I think a lot of fans are frustrated with that narrative. Um, yes. Because they want to see her, you know, they want to see her back in Westeros. That's where, the, you know, that's where the final showdown is going to happen, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, just wandering around Essos for so long. And I think the other thing, too, and I'd like to believe, and I do believe to a certain extent, this is this is Martin's purpose in creating all of this, is to show, again, how power can corrupt, yeah. right, if that's your singular focus, but also not really considering paying attention to the culture of the peoples, right, that that you are trying to rule. But also, she really surrounds herself with yes-men. You know, there's really nobody other than Jorah, who she dismisses in the books and never, I don't think Jorah comes back, does he? Well, he hasn't yet, that's for sure. Not yet. He's on his way with Tyrion. Um, But, you know, Jorah was really the only person who even slightly kind of pushed back when she would have these ideas. Uh For the most part, she has surrounded herself with people who adore her and agree with her and do whatever she wants. And, you know, not to get too political, but we've seen how disastrous that is in our own country with leadership that runs that way. So there's a lot of just interesting commentary. There's a lot of interesting things that Martin is doing when it comes to showing what not to do, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. with leadership and power. But, you know, you can't ignore the fact that Danny is a woman, too. And her history of being dismissed and ignored and sold and abused and all of these things, of course, will play into the kind of leader that she eventually becomes. And at the same time, so we're rooting for her And And willing to maybe ignore some of the more horrific things that she does because we are rooting for her. Everything in the narrative suggests we should be. Even if we stop and have, ooh, that was kind of harsh. Or, hmm, should she really have burned those people? (laughs) But but it's Danny. That's right. You know, we're we're supposed to believe that this is her hero's journey. And to be, I mean, this is part of Martin's brilliance, but, you know, this character, Ned Stark, he's engendering a lot of empathy. Yes. Early on, what the, one of the first things we know about him is he's beheading a, a deserter. Yes. <laughs> which is sort of horrific state-sanctioned violence. 
Yes. You know, this poor guy is just running for his life and he gets his head taken off by Ned Stark. And yet we're, we're kind we kind of forgive Ned for this. Yes. And we still hold him up as the sort of paragon of honor. And that it's his honor that gets him killed. Right. Yeah. Uh, Cause he's too good for Martin's world. Actually, he's, he's not great. <laughs> he doesn't play the game as Cersei says, right? That's right. Well, he's got a different game that he's, that he's playing. And maybe he just doesn't play it as well as he should. And what ends up happening to Ned? Well, he gets his own head taken off. Right. So here we have Danny, who we're introduced um, to just as early. She's a character with considerably less power. And so we're taught to root for her. And yet she's not going to be the perfect character. She's going to have the same problems that Ned had if she makes the same sorts of mistakes that Ned made. Right. So I don't know. I mean, Martin says that the ending is going to be bittersweet. And it's hard to imagine a story that's bittersweet if Danny turns evil. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, book reader, show watchers, you know that horrible things are to come. I mean, you just know. Right. And you're right. Ned having his head cut off season one. I mean, if, if you weren't a book reader, that was such a shock. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that, that bad things will happen to some of the most beloved characters. So it will be very interesting to see. And, and how influenced will Martin be by the... Right. <laughs> Almost universal panning <laughs> the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> All right. So notable introductions in this chapter. We meet Eerie, Jiqui, and Daria. Yes. Which here we have Danny. Basically, she's a slave. Yet she's a slave that's been gifted with three slaves. With slaves. <laughs> right. Lower forms of slave, I right. suppose. Yes. And one of them is supposed to teach her horse riding. One of them is supposed to teach her the Dothraki tongue. And one of them is supposed to teach her the art of lovemaking. Yes. Um, so we're in introduced to those characters. It, really, probably her first chance at a leadership role with these characters. And then, famously, we are introduced to the dragon eggs. Ah, uh, yes. We haven't talked about the dragon eggs. The dragon eggs. Yeah. So clearly these are, these have enormous value, but they're also, we are supposed to believe that they are, uh, you know, have been turned to stone after, you know, ages have turned them to stone, but they're of immense value. The hero is being given the magic sword that's going to eventually, you know, change, change the fates of the story. And the eggs are kind of a parallel to her evolution, right? They're unbeknownst to us, but they're they're growing and they mm. are developing. Mm -hmm. And it's not coincidental, of course, that they hatch at the moment. Danny uh, hatches. Absolutely, at the end, the, so to speak. that phoenix experience is you know coupled with these dragon eggs, which is also really problematic because. <laughs> and I know I shouldn't use that word, but. <laughs> It has to, you know. This, you don't realize how often you use it until you start pointing out that you use yeah, it all the time, yeah, yeah. and then you become very conscious of it. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, this is the, the dragon's hatch, which is Danny's becoming right and her power at the expense of Miri Mazdur, this human sacrifice. Uh, 
Yeah, what do you think about her? I, I spent way too much time than I should have this week thinking about MMD. Yeah. <laughs> and what her what her role was yeah. in all of this, um, I, that's been endlessly debated on fan yeah. sites, as I'm sure you know. Um, she would be kind of fascinating to talk about. But well, yes, in that moment, yeah. strapping her to the pyre um, and her soul kind of being burned out at the moment that Danny emerges is fascinating and horrific. Um, I, I feel like we've talked about books and show differences. You know, one very notable difference is how they portray the uh, Danny's rape. The other differences that I noted were that um, Drogo seems to have a manse that's been supplied to him by Illyrio. Mm, yes. So that's that's it. Like, what's he what's he doing with a manse? That's a little little strange. The Illyrio and Drogo seem to have this interesting re- relationship that's never really spelled out. It's not. And, you know, Illyrio is so kind of enigmatic. Um, I think, you know, a couple of the passages you've read in this chapter certainly show elements of his personality. It shows he certainly has an agenda. He he thinks, um, you know, Viserys is a fool. Mm-hmm. That's barely concealed, you know, just his facial expressions and how he addresses him. Oh, he has all the power. But- he has all the he power. He has all the power, absolutely. Yeah. And it would be interesting to see what that prior relationship was with Drogo, mm-hmm. what Drogo's motives are um, for entering into this this marriage and this arrangement. I don't know. It's not something I've really thought too much about, mainly because, you know, Drogo, especially in the books, is just not really fleshed out at all. Uh, we really don't get much of him at all That's right. in, in the books. And on top of that, I, f- I feel like as we, as we cross our fingers and hope these books will, you know, be published, I think Illyrio has a bigger role to play. He kind of fades out of the show. Do we ever find out what happens to him? Does he have any kind of conclusion in the show? Or he just disappears, doesn't he? He just kind of disappears from the, they mention him a few times, but that character just kind of fades out. And I, and I think it's because their show really doesn't want to do anything with this fake Aegon character. Yeah. Who's kind of, who looks to be really important in the books, but they're certainly setting him up that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Illyrio has something to do with this sort of uh, claim to the throne by way of the Blackfire Targaryens. And the show didn't have space for that. So Illyrio yeah. got the axe. I'm I'm really curious to see what Martin does with that character. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I think maybe if, if that is more developed as it's setting up to be, Illyrio might make a, a strong resurgence at some point. Hey, time has flown by. <laughs> it has. I can't. I just looked at our clock. I can't believe it. I love talking about this. Even the stuff that disturbs me, I feel like it's always better to have another voice in the dark, you know? It is. And, you know, I'm, I'm always saying this to my students and just people who share a love of the books and the show as I do. It's okay to be a conflicted fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay to love something while recognizing, oh, okay, maybe this isn't sending the best message, or I don't really like the portrayal of these characters, or, you know, this is not sending the best idea about ideas of consent, or Mm -hmm. it's it's okay to be conflicted as long as you have that lens on, and you're able to use 
the things that you love and the things that you can enjoy, maybe use that as a, as a mechanism and tool for thinking through some of these harder issues. Wonderful. So glad, so glad, so glad. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Steve, I've read a lot of theology in my days. And I've read a fair amount of Richie Rich comics, so I feel like we've pretty good common ground. <laughs> yeah. And this line that Gren delivers to Sam when we go up north, if the gods wanted us to have dignity... They wouldn't make us fart when we died. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, There's something profound about it. I mean, I think that it's actually maybe the summation of theology. It's like, how do you condense it into like a Snapple cap? <laughs> there are levels of fantasy narratives. And the level that is probably most well-known is the high mimetic form, wherein these characters are more godlike than they are human Mm-hmm. And one way that you can tell that they're godlike is that they never and they never have to use the bathroom. Right. And this episode starts out with Arya, she's got to pee in the river. Right. So she's using the bathroom and Gren's talking about farting. This is not high mimetic fantasy, Steve. That's fair. This is grounded in scatology. Correct. And brothels are pretty gross. Yeah, having not been to one, I'm going to I'm going to side with Game of Thrones on this one. And this is supposed to be a high-class brothel. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is a top shelfer, I guess. This is, this is what's going on at the best brothel. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Dollar General version of the brothel. You, don't, you can't unsee it. I mean, they're killing babies. They're threatening death. They're wiping, they're wiping mouths. <laughs> mouths. Right before a full-on French kiss. Right, yeah, that was, uh, that's not a vegan move. Oh, jeez. Another really solid exchange between uh, Tyrion and Cersei. Oh, that's great. That was, that was wonderful. Love that stuff. She's mastered the art of ripping paper. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. I mean, there was so much great dialogue from both of them. I mean, it was This is a very strong Tyrion episode. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, oh, I was like viscerally moved by when he shows up and then the Master of Whispers is just hanging out. And I'm just like, oh, no, <laughs> this, is, this is bad news. But then they get their moment together and I'm like, ah, two of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Up scenery together. I loved it. Um, didn't take Sam too long to fall in love. No, no, not at all. Um, it just took yeah. one girl to look at him and he was done. 
Yeah, we've all known a Sam. I mean, I thought she said he's brave. Yeah, and that was it. That was all he had to do. That's it. That was that was enough. He's prepared to die for this woman, man. Right. And, you know, give Sam a lot of credit. This is either his ability to look past some of the things that maybe some of us would, because we're a little choosier when it comes to picking a potential romantic partner. You know, some people have different, like, thresholds of beauty. Maybe it's just even quirks and this and that. Hey, I don't like the way she chews her food. She's got a weird laugh. But for him, he was able to look past things like, hey, she's having her father's baby. Like, there's things that Sam is able to just look past. And uh, you got to give him credit for that. You know, everyone else in this story has some sort of clear negative attribute that they're wrestling with and so far sam is just he's just a nice guy in a very cruel world sure well he's also a dummy (laughs) he is a dummy so far and i'll say and i'll say i think his dumminess is exemplified by him being a nice guy in a cruel world there's something about creating such a dark landscape whereby you can just bring up like a happy fool into the roster of characters. And all of a sudden he becomes interesting because he's unlike anyone else. Yeah, it's almost like he has a superpower. Is this something against fat people? Because Hot Pie is also a fool. Right. Yeah, there's there's at least three fools, right? Because then there was the other guy who showed up drunk. And Oh yeah, uh, Sir Dantos is Sir also Dantos, a fool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is definitely this is a body shaming show. It is. It, God, yes. Now, um... See, now here's the thing, but going back to Sam is like the as soon as Sam was introduced, I just feel like I am playing a game of like it's a deadpool. It's just like which episode is this the one where Sam's gonna obviously die in a way that's supposed to tug at your heart? Like there's there's nothing about Sam that says, Oh, he might actually get he might win this thing. Yeah, a- anyone that you start to care about is fair game, right? Right. You know, again, that's the only thing I really know about the show is don't fall in love, kid. And yeah, so Sam and is like immediately like, what are the sheer odds that the Game of Thrones ends with Sam? On? I didn't even think I was playing. Yeah, you've got the most vulnerable character in the harshest and cruelest part of the, the planet, right? Right. Yeah. Whether it's the supernatural that's out there to get him. Or his it's own his daughter. own penis. Yeah, that's the thing that's probably the biggest danger right now. And he's one of these guys because of that, like, can, because he doesn't see past kindness, does have the potential to put others in danger. Yes, that is very true. We meet, we actually meet a pirate. We meet I a know. pirate. We get a, we get a pirate, and he's, a, you know, he's, he's a flashy little pirate, isn't he? He likes being a pirate. Yeah, when he went to career day and he got registered as pirate, he was like, that's it. He went He's to Hogwarts, the sorting hat, put him into the pirate class. <laughs> He's just all about it. And like to the point where you're like, how bad could it be? And he's got some interesting things to say, theologically speaking, too. This particular season is really playing up the religious aspects. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you got the Lord of the Light subplot for sure. That's a very, like, that's a very dramatic zealotry focused form of leadership well yeah and there are many there are many reasons to go to war right you could just be greedy you could want power but how do you how do you win the masses over well religion's one way you could do it right and we'll see if it's effective or not but clearly our pirate friend is that's not why he wants to go to war he wants to go to war because he wants to seduce cersei yeah so he's got he's got his like he's got his list Things, you know, a little checklist of things to accomplish. His bucket list. Yeah, he's got a bucket list, and Cersei's just on there, which is kind of okay. All right, that's a 
that's a big one. But he's like, hey, this is, I'm, I've done a lot, man. I've seen, I've seen a lot. I've been to a lot of shows that I wanted to see. I've been around the world. Now I'm going to go to those, to the, uh, what I thought was the unattainables. So Steve, you kept yourself pretty uh, pure in a sense of not reading ahead, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you don't know who's going to wind up on top in the War of the Five Kings. No, I don't. I just now I'm feeling like I understand who the five kings are. Exactly. So we've been introduced to all of them now. So yeah. here's one. Renly is the one I think I have the least amount of like, okay, because like I had to be kind of jarred back into memory that he has a title of this. Right. Okay. So I'm going to go through these kings and I'm going to list their strengths and weaknesses. And then I want you to give me sort of a, uh, give me their odds or at least who you would put your money behind. Okay. All right. So we'll start with Stannis. Mm-hmm. Stannis seems to have a strongest claim to the throne because he's the eldest brother of the Baratheons. He's got the smallest army, but he's now he's got ships. Yeah. And he's got this sort of red priestess backing him with religious zealotry. So that's what he has going for him. Mm-hmm. He also has sex on a table. Have you ever, I just never, never, I've never thought that like, Sex on a table would be good. No, especially with game pieces. You ever step he, on a Trivial Pursuit wedge? Yeah, that's Lord. like having sex on like on Legos. Yeah. That does not sound good. No, 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 no. But, you know, she is immune to poison. Sure. So she, she can be on her back on, uh, on a little figurine, I guess. <laughs> Maybe she's also immune to chess pieces. I guess so. Um, all right. So there's Stannis. All right. So now you mentioned Renly. Renly is... Uh, he seems to have the largest army at this point. Yeah, this does feel a lot like Catan, but yeah, it's going. Yeah, right. So Renly's got the, and he he doesn't have a, a strong claim to the throne, but there's no question that he's Baratheon. Right. And people love him. So he's got sort of this winning personality, which works with politics. Smoothest chest. He's smoothest chest. Stannis is like stern. He's got religion behind him, but Renly is like... Uh, Renly's sort of like the Canadian Prime Minister. He's yeah, a little, little Trudeau in him. Yeah. Okay. He's easy on the eyes, politically savvy. Yeah. Okay. So then you got Renly. And then, of course, Joffrey. We all know about Joffrey. Yeah. He's a coward. People don't like him. But the thing he's got going for him is that he's actually sitting on the iron. Right. Possession is nine-tenths. That's right. Okay. Depending on where Tyrion lands, if he takes his rightful spot to be the hand of the king, that's an advantage for Joffrey. Right. If he's acting as Joffrey's brain, then Joffrey immediately gets a superpower. Yeah, exactly. And a superpower that none of the other kings have. Mm-hmm. He's got both Varys and, and uh, on the surface. He's also got Varys and Tyrion. So Yeah. We have Rob Stark. He's and also he's got, he's got the he's got the cash right I mean he's got like he's got the technology right I mean isn't that considered like Joffrey's got well Joffrey yeah Joffrey at least he has the reputation of being the wealthiest so well there's something about being the attacked there's a certain amount of home field advantage you have oh yeah no it takes a lot less people to defend a castle with high walls and a moat you know yeah all right so Rob Rob has. Moxie. He? he has moxie he's got a wolf he's got uh he's got people that believe in him so he's got that going for him he also has a bargaining chip that's right he's yes he's captured the oldest living heir of his enemy right 
Yeah. But smaller army, he's the invading force. He's young, but he's won, th- won three battles. Three battles, yeah. Okay. Finally, we now know Balon Greyjoy. Smaller army, but he's got ships. He's got ships too. And he's kind of a, an old... He's like old son of a bitch or something. Yeah. Like something about the, the old man son of a bitch that, I don't know, just, he'll just scare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just, he's got. There's something he, about Rob that's not quite scary, but the old, you know, Balon Greyjoy is just a scary old, he's got the bald head on top and the long hair in the back. Yeah, that's very much like the, the, the villain in Poltergeist 2. It's like the medieval mullet. Yeah, yeah. Just a guy that's like, no, let it grow. That's how much I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Give me the poltergeist too. <laughs> <laughs> so I want the phantasm. <laughs> All right. So um, which of these kings would you put your money behind? It's great. I mean, it's a great question, Anthony. You're asking, you're asking a really provocative question. Because as I go through them all, you know, you start looking at it from a strategic standpoint. You're like, ships make a big difference, I think. Um I think that I history think, tells us ships makes a big difference. I give, I do tend to give a certain edge to to Stannis because of the ships, and but it's I, it's the the religious zealotry yeah. component because there is an influence there that suggests that like you don't need it. I mean that's what she's she's been saying. You got the Lord of Light, right? And and that's been the downfall for many religious leaders. And on top of that. We've had a little hint that there's something to her magic. She's not just spouting mythology. She's right, but the question is to what extent does that magic lend itself? Right. Mm. I mean, is that magic? Uh, I mean, there's a difference between like I mean, you just look at the Emperor Palpatine, right? I mean, Emperor Palpatine in Return of the Jedi is like, dude, that guy'll that guy'll fry your bacon if you're within a certain range. Yep. Then you get to Rise of Skywalker, Emperor Palpatine. He's like, oh, he'll just he can. He, he's all the power you ever need. He'll take out ships from a chair. Or, you know, like that's that's a big leap. So if she's more Rise of Skywalker, well, then yeah. <laughs> you don't need a ship. But if she's more, you know, uh, Return of the Jedi, then yeah, I mean, you know, she's, she's... You know, the one thing about Palpatine is that in all of these different iterations of him, he loves the monologue. He just loves to monologue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Stannis he, doesn't have this problem. Stan no, no. Stannis is like a... Uh, He's like an actor who was like, look, if we give him one more line, his contract <laughs> kicks in and he gets these signing bonuses, you know. We like, hired we, him because he has a steely-eyed glare. Hell yeah, he does. That's all we need out of you, sir. Yeah, in fact, I almost wonder if they went too far with dialogue and he should have just spoken in a series of grunts. <laughs> just like, I, I'm thinking young Frankenstein. You know, and she's like, you know, your wife is, you know, you're not attracted to her. Just, like, I think that would have been pretty powerful. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So, uh, Balon has that sort of old man, son of a bitch character, but Stannis does too. So, he's got yeah, that Yeah, I, I think, I mean, if I'm looking, if I'm breaking it down, I think Balon is, like you said, the advantage of just being that wily son of a bitch. He's got the ships, but he's also got, I mean, like, they all have an ego. I mean, that goes without saying, but his, his hubris feels like it is really latched into, like he's got some, some serious sour grapes act, action going on. Maybe oh, yeah. Vengeance. 
Yeah. That, I mean, I mean, Stannis has issues with, you know, his brother and all, but like there's a certain element of Stannis that still feels like he strikes me as pretty good with strategy. Like he may be distracted by the Lord of Light. And I think that's going to the Lord of Light narrative, I think is going to be his ultimate undoing. If I'm taking a, a guess here, you know, the body count will probably be high. Here's what I'm going to suggest. But I feel like I don't have enough information on Renly, to yeah, be honest. That's, like, that's what like, I was just going to say. I was going to yeah. suggest that you think about this over the next week. And upon the viewing the next episode where we have a little bit more uh, Renly, then we'll hear your definitive answer. Okay. Steve, this episode birthed two very popular fan theories about the outcome of two different character arcs that created a massive amount of argument among the fans. Okay. And I'm going to tell you what they are. And I'm going to play spoiler just just a little bit here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one, <laughs> one of the fan theories, by the way, we detail both of these fan theories in our book, Gods of Thrones, with commissioned fantasy artwork all right so Ooh. one of the fan theories is that Varys is actually a merman oh okay <laughs> so if that doesn't catch you right away let me <laughs> let me give you the rundown here so this sort of starts with this gross fish pie metaphor that Tyrion brings up right and then he says what does he say he says if you threaten me again I'll throw you in the sea and Vera says, storms come and go, the big fish eat the little fish, right. and I keep on swimming. Yeah, yeah. So this has got some, some sort of very creative fan theory going that, uh, well, we never actually see Varys's feet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like Gills would have been. We, do, we don't know much about his backstory. Like, he's not like, you know, we don't know who his parents are. We don't know really where <laughs> we he just comes assume from. they're fish. <laughs> Yeah, if ever you don't know where a character comes from, you just assume <laughs> at least half fish, right? Is hot pie born of pie? Uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of backstory on him either, but I don't necessarily think that he's minced meat. Uh, all right, so the the other fan theory that I uh, that I really liked for a while is. Arya meets these three gross guys in a cage. Right. Yes, right. So these guys are Jack and Hagar. He's the nice, handsome one. Mm. The, others, the others are Rorge and Biter. And, <laughs> <Okay. laughs> well, you know, one of them has sharpened yellow teeth. What, yeah. what else yeah. are you going to call him? Right? You sort of lose. You sort of lose the being called Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was dug until he started sharpening his yeah. yellow teeth, and then he's like, like when Sting just told everybody he's Sting now. He's like, I'm Biter now. Check these out. <laughs> I guess it'll so. Always, Jack, it'll always be dug to me. So Jackin is is an interesting character, and some people think that you know you remember Serial Pharrell, the dance oh, yeah. master. Mm-hmm. So as soon as Serial leaves the narrative, and we don't know what happens to Serial. Jacken shows up, and they're both really important characters for Arya. They end up okay. being important characters for Arya. And so some fans would suggest that they are actually one and the same. And these theories didn't really ever come to any kind of fruition. 
Okay, so we um, don't we don't see uh, various just swim off at the end like like I, splash. I was waiting for it. Ah, man, I was really waiting for it. I really like that theory. It's such a fun theory. <laughs> he just splashes out of the water like the Little Mermaid, you know. <laughs> just in the books, he sleeps on this stone slab that's actually this hatch door that goes down to the the bowels of the city where he can like have easy access to the ocean. Interesting. So this could easily okay. be his sort of merman escape hatch. <laughs> okay. And of course, so and the books are not completed yet. So these these theories could could actually work out in the books, but in the show, Varys did not end up being a merman that we know of. And Jack and Hagar did not end up being Serio Pharrell. Okay. So I thought I would yeah, just okay. uh, just throw those theories out to you. So now I'm going to be watching this show disappointed. No, I think that, <laughs> that you should be watching. Varys is not a merman, or at least I or think I'll just you be should looking be for watching, Easter eggs the whole time. <laughs> I think you should be watching, looking for the hints that might contribute to these fan theories, because these theories may actually have some merit in book form. This is what I like. I like it's the show within the show. It's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No dragons this episode. We know that they exist. Right. No dragons. No dragons. They're giving me a, a, just a little glimpse. I've only had a little Costco sample size of dragons. At this so point. let me ask you this. Would you prefer more dragons? At this? Uh, I'm not there yet. I'm in the I'll tolerate a dragon. The dragons to me are a little bit like Keanu Reeves. In the sense that for a while, Keanu was kind of a joke, but mm-hmm. now we can't get enough of him. It's true. It's, true. it's like he's re- he's almost revered. Oh, yeah. No, he's very revered. Uh, so almost. for you, the dragons, are, yeah, a little bit. A little. Yeah, this is point break dragons for me. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Yeah. And if, there w- if, if I can get to a matrix level of dragons... It will set me up for the John Wick appreciation of dragons. Mm, okay, but I'm I'm gonna need that arc. I'm gonna need that Keanu arc. Okay, so right now we're at po- we point, point break. break. Yeah. Well, we're gonna have to wait and see. So far, they, ha- they haven't revealed very much, right? It's no. just it, it's almost like the the monster you don't see is more scary because of your own imagination. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So I'm like, you know, because I guess that's what, what I get. Like, my apprehension comes from like, ooh, look at all this political intrigue. Ooh, how is Tyrion going to navigate being Hand of the King, you know, with, with Joffrey's mentality and Cersei's influence, and there's all this stuff going on, and, and then there's going to be like, ah, but we're going to have an episode where we're fighting monsters. And I'm like, that, to me, is where I get apprehensive. <laughs> like, oh, no, here we go. Um, like, really when monster s- trucks race instead of run over cars, like, that, to me, I'm like, what are you doing? Get on them cars yeah, we want you going over cars yeah, we want you I smashing want you, cars yeah, I we want don't want to see you racing i want you jumping into cars <laughs> like i never understood oh bigfoot's gonna race grave diggers like oh my goodness there's all those cars <laughs> <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk to you about typology and possible literary types which frame both Danny and John. 
And I'll just be reading directly from Aaron and I's first volume of Gods of Thrones. This is a chapter that Aaron was the primary author on, but we both have our fingerprints on it. But anyway, credit to Bosmang Aaron. Danny and John are on trajectories to the Iron Throne. Both begin as highly unlikely claimants, only to be revealed as heirs of the Targaryen line. The lives of Danny and John show a number of parallel events, including gaining acceptance from foreign tribes, losing lovers to untimely deaths. But the most compelling parallels between their narrative arcs, those that motivate their political decisions, are messianic. By calling them types of messiahs, we're appealing to the concept very broadly. We're thinking broadly enough that both Moses, the messianic prototype, and maybe Jesus, the messianic antitype, are relevant. We're not suggesting that Martin had any particular biblical character or story in mind. But once recognized, these parallels show a pattern, and Martin is not immune to literary patterns, as we know. In truth, he traffics in literary types like cartel, mule, and distributor, all rolled into a single intertextual inkslinger. Consider the pattern that we find with Moses. Placed in a basket, sent down the river, raised by a surrogate guardian, that would be Pharaoh's daughter. Led Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, so a savior of an entire group of people. And then associated with a new world order, a new social order, new form of governance, that being the Ten Commandments. Okay, so keep that in mind as we look at John, for instance. Taken to Winterfell and given an alias, raised by a surrogate father, Ned Stark allowed the free folk to settle south of the wall, so saves an entire people group, and then associated with a new social order. This is the integration of Wildings and Night's Watch. Consider Danny's narrative arc. She's spirited away as a baby, taken to Essos. She's brought up by a surrogate parent or guardian. That would be her brother Viserys. Savior an entire people group. In fact, she's named Breaker of Chains, and she's associated with a new social order, this is just hopeful thinking on her part. She aims to break the wheel of tyranny. And then if we wanted to connect this sort of messianic type beyond Moses, we could say that both of these people sort of experience something of a death and resurrection. For John, maybe possible resurrection. Now, this is not an attempt to show that John is a Jesus type or that Danny is a Moses type. It only shows that the stories of these characters are broadly messianic. And if so, we gain fuel for theorizing of an outcome for the Iron Throne. Simply put, neither John nor Danny make sense as benevolent dictators. But, because they are messianic types, the logical outcomes of their stories are as government reformers. Perhaps the messianic type will pass down a new governing charter only to die just before reaching the promised land. In other words, like Moses. Or perhaps the messiah will be crushed by the wheel of tyranny, for example, Jesus. In either case, if there is a messiah in Martin's world, the power of the Iron Throne will be significantly diminished in favor of a new world order. Now, we didn't quite see this as much in the show, but there was a hint of it in the show. Aaron, of course, was early on the idea that this whole breaking the wheel of tyranny is maybe a step toward a democratic system in Westeros. And then, of course, I come along and I say, yeah, probably maybe baby steps toward that. And the underlying basis for this is that both Danny and John 
show evidence of a certain literary type. If you have any thoughts on this that you'd like to share or any questions that have arisen from this, or if you think I'm thinking about this all wrong, go ahead and email book at baldmove.com. And that's all for this week.